Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51, conversations with writers of all genres about writing. I'm Brian Moritz. Today's guest is Baxter Holmes from ESPN. Baxter Holmes, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And you probably have better weather than I do since you're in Los Angeles and I'm in upstate New York. I'm just going uh, yeah. to guess you don't have snow actively happening right now. Uh, there's no snow on the ground, but it's a little bit chillier than uh, people here would like. But that's <laughs> all relative to everywhere else. Right. Because you, you've been around. You, you, I know you've been in L.A. for a few years, but uh, you were in Boston and Oklahoma before, right? Yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma in a small town in southeastern Oklahoma, went to college at OU, uh, started at the LA Times, was there for three and a half years, then got hired at the Boston Globe to cover the Celtics, uh, was there for two years, and then came back uh, to LA to uh, with ESPN, and I've been with them for three, year, three years and four or five months, something like that. All right. What was, just out of curiosity, what was the town in Oklahoma you grew up in? Uh, very small. It's a town called Tuscahoma. Uh, not many people have heard of it. I think there's about 80 full-time residents. It's okay. Wow. Incredibly tiny. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, the only small town in Oklahoma I'm at all familiar with is Ada. Um, and that's, oh yeah. That's I don't know. I'm I'm a New York guy. To me, it's all one state. So I don't know how close it is. But my former newspaper publisher worked there when uh, before he came to the paper that I worked with him at. He was from Ada, Oklahoma, and I like to talk about it a lot. So. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious coming from such a small, I mean, that, that's uh, as small towns go. That's, that's small. I'm wondering, um, how does that, do you think that influ- does that have an impact on your writing, your reporting style on your career at all? I and mean, is that color, how you see the world or how you see your job at all? Uh, that's a good question. I, I've never really thought about it in that way. I was actually born just North of Seattle and uh, lived there for a few years um, until I think I was about in first or second grade. And then we moved to Oklahoma, um, where I basically grew up. But um, I've, you know, my uh, we moved around a little bit uh, because of my dad's job when I was little, and um, I had kind of traveled with him. We did a lot of long road trips as a family, so I never really felt uh, as much as I grew up in a small town that that I was you know, kind of closed off to the rest of the world or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, not necessarily. I mean, I, I read a lot growing up and um, started working at a small at the, the newspaper in a, a neighboring town when I was 16. And, uh, you know, things kind of took off from there. OK, so when I uh, when I first emailed you to schedule the uh, the podcast, I was very excited to talk to you. You've written some of my favorite stories uh, and we're going to get to them today about NBA players and peanut butter and jelly, NBA players and wine. And I love them both. And you emailed me back and said, yeah, you want to do the I'd love to do the podcast, but I've got this story coming out this week and you're going to I think you're going to like it. And uh, <laughs> and sure as heck that dropped uh, two days ago as we we're recording this a story on uh the basketball success of Kinston, North Carolina. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story. I'll throw the link in show notes to it. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about that piece. Neil. first of all, where did the, where did this idea for the story come from? Sure. So I was, I covered the Lakers for three years for ESPN when they drafted uh, Brandon Ingram. I, you know, naturally wanted to do uh, some kind of story about him, a profile, whatever the case may be. 
and was researching and, and saw that he came from a pretty small town that had, for whatever reason, produced um, a number of NBA players. And so I, I then became more interested in the town. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. I remember calling Cedric Maxwell, uh, former uh, Celtics great, who is also from that town. And at the end of the interview, I was I would, had asked him, you know, is there anything about this town that uh, I, I would be surprised by or that I wouldn't know? And he mentioned casually that one fact about like, yeah, there was, you know, like a nuclear accident that nearly happened nearby. And so then I started researching that. And then, uh, you know, I convinced my editor to let me go to the town. And one thing kind of led to another, which is how I think a lot of my stories are. It's, you know, one phone call, one question. And I, and then I'm, you know, I'll say, tell me a little bit more about that or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah. And then, and then things will kind of, I just kind of let my curiosity or whatever guide me. And I'm some very good editors who help me out. Uh, along the way uh, tremendously. So yeah, that's kind of how that one started. But what's kind of the overview of of the story? Like why why are we talking about Kinston, North Carolina in terms of the NBA? Sure. So they produce, as, as I said, a number of NBA players, um, you know, from Cedric Maxwell, Jerry Stackhouse, Reggie Bullock, Brandon Ingram, uh, t- uh, guys like Charles Shacklesford and Herbert Hill. Um, but they, it is a town that has been you know, subject to some really almost biblical obstacles and uh, tragedy dating back many decades. And I opened the story with the story of how uh, two hydrogen bombs fell uh, not far from there and nearly detonated. Um, then there is economic devastation, which is really, you know, and the town is still tremendously struggling from that. Mm-hmm. They have this river that flows through there that floods um, at the drop of a hat and, you know, will wipe out you know, so much of the town nearly every time it does it. Uh, and they have, uh, you know, real problems with gang violence. Um, you know, I think their, their violent crime rate is about double national average, according to the FBI statistics. So, uh, but yet through all of that, they have this incredible basketball tradition. And, you know, the, the, the local high school has been to about 21 state championship games. There was a stretch, I think, where the middle school lost only a handful of games, you know, over a period of more than a dozen years. So mm-hmm. it is just it's a remarkable place um, for basketball. But it, it's uh, it's a town of survival, given everything that it has faced. But but basketball is what survives most. Right. And I, I, I and just I know you've mentioned it a few times, but that opening anecdote about the almost nuclear accident is just a striking way to to, to start the story. And so I'm wondering, you know, you kind of mentioned how you learned about it. Um, but kind of tell that story and why you, and why'd you decide to lead with that? Why, obviously you put that in the story, but why start there? Sure. So the, the first thing I'll say is in terms of why starting there was, well, actually, I guess I'll back up and explain a little bit of this, of the anecdotes, just so listeners have a better understanding in case they haven't read the story. Um, so in 1961, um, a B-52 bomber carrying two hydrogen bombs sprung a fuel leak, uh, fell apart in midair and the two bombs fell. Uh, towards Faro, North Carolina, which is in eastern North Carolina, and uh, they nearly detonated. Uh, one was one one of the bombs; their parachute opened, and it fell into a, a trio of gum trees. The other one, its parachute didn't open, so it fell at the speed of sound into a plowed tobacco field, um, and an over a period of many days had to be dug out. And uh, I interviewed the man uh, who was, you know, then 25, and was sent for, by the Air Force to go find the bombs and uh, defuse them or disarm them, I should say. And, you know, he told me of all the um, 
nuclear mishaps that the country has ever had, and they're called broken arrows when like something with a nuclear bomb goes awry. That that was the closest we've ever come to um, a situation that we would never forget. You know, he said it could have been a bay in North Carolina um, had those bombs gone off. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I opened the scene or I opened the story with that scene just because. I mean, you know, I'm always thinking of the reader's attention first and foremost and how fragile it is and how it's the easiest thing uh, to keep and to maintain. And, you know, any when I heard that story, it just it stuck with me when I interviewed the guy and how close it was, um, you know, to being an unbelievable disaster. I just and then, you know, I, I was like, oh, this is kind of a no brainer to open the story, but in a more poignant way. I kept thinking about how even, you know, the fact that those bombs didn't go off is a miracle, but that the town, it seems, has been almost paying for them in a weird way ever since, right? They've just faced so much tragedy ever since this near biblical disaster. And, uh, I, you know, again, part of it, I guess, is just the device of, of, you know, a compelling scene that um, a lot of people probably don't know about that. You know, had it gone off, probably could have sparked World War Three. Um, you know, that's something that I, I think about and have thought about a lot. You know, at the time we had those B-52s up there because we wanted to be able to attack the Soviets if they attacked us, um, you know, immediately. And if one of those bombs had gone off, there's a strong chance that we likely would have thought that it was the Soviets for whatever reason and that we would have then, you know, fired back at them and them at us and. Who knows from there what where we'd be today. But uh, but in terms of, you know, opening the story there, I just thought it was it was too compelling to whatever to put anywhere else. Well, it's a lesson I try to teach a lot of my students, too, is like if a story really resonates with you and you think it's I call it the oh, cool test because I feel like I have to name it. But it's this idea like it's something that if I think it's interesting, it should be your story. It should probably be your lead, because if I as the writer think it's interesting, there's probably a chance that you as the reader are going to be as interested on it uh, by it as well and kind of drawn into the story by it as well. Yeah. And look, every time I told that story, um, whether, you know, to my wife, to friends, to whoever the case may be, the response was always like, Oh my God. And mm-hmm. I just, and it was and and from there people would want to know more like, well, what happened next? What's, you know, what became of it? What, what, Everything like that. Even when I was in the town interviewing people, I, I had mentioned, because uh, I'd interviewed the gentleman who disarmed the bombs before I went to the town, and I was explaining that story to some of them, and they couldn't believe it. You know, they had known maybe that there was, you know, some kind of nuclear something that had happened, to, you know, nearby many years ago, but they didn't know that it was a hydrogen bomb or that there were two of them or how close they were to going off and what could have happened from then on. So, yeah, I mean, it was... It was a very easy decision. I'll put it that way. Hmm. And, and, and so you mentioned earlier that your reporting, especially with, with uh, this story, but with all your stories, kind of like one thing leads to another and one call kind of leads to something else. So kind of if it, walk through the whole reporting process and how often you were at the town, how long you were there and kind of the steps and how the story kind of unfolded for you. Sure. So, um, you know, after doing a series of phone interviews with various people in the town, um, and I and I want to first give a tremendous amount of thanks to a gentleman named Brian Hanks, who was uh, worked at the newspaper there um, and is, I think, the basketball announcer for the Kinston basketball team. He had reached out after I did a story about Brandon Ingram and told me that he enjoyed the story. And then I think I had mentioned that I was interested in doing something 
maybe about Brennan's hometown. And then we started corresponding and he was so helpful along the way of, you know, pointing me in the right direction of, of who might be good to speak with and things of that nature. And especially when I was there, but I went to the town in August of 2016 after doing a series of interviews um, and was there uh, for probably three days or four days. And then it was just a gamut of interviews while I was there. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with Brian. I spent, uh, you know, going around the town, seeing, you know, with the factories that, uh, you know, no longer are at the pe- their peak uh, that they once were, uh, seeing a lot of the great gyms that they have and recreation centers, you know, meeting law enforcement. And, you know, when I went there, I initially had thought like, oh, this is a great basketball town. Um, you know, very interesting. But while I was there, I started to see a bigger picture of a lot of the struggles that the town had faced, particularly with crime um, and with, uh, yeah, you know, the various floods and things of that nature. But particularly with crime, I would say, you know, when I was sitting with Perry Tyndall, the head basketball coach of the Kinston High School team, and he was telling me how um, he has to tell his players, you deserve to grow old um, in terms of, of wanting them to think beyond basketball and, and not fall into other ways of life there. And, uh, or talking to the sheriff, Ronnie Ingram, Brandon Ingram's uncle and hearing him say, uh, tell his son, who's a local cop that, you know, you can't save everybody. Those really stuck with me. And then I started to realize that this was not just a town about story about, you know, a town that produces a lot of players, but a town that really has, is, uh, in dire straits in some ways. Um, and that basketball is what survives there a lot. So, you know, from there, obviously, there's a lot of there's 18 months that separate us between when I was first there and um, when the story was published. And I wasn't working on it the whole time during all of that. I, you know, I, I covered the Lakers for us. I had a bunch of stories that were in the works, um, and there was uh, you know some upheaval at ESPN. You know, well publicized this last year in terms of number of layoffs and and restructuring and things of that nature. So the story got put on hold. Uh, for lack of a better term for some time, but, um, I was able to get back to it. Um, and we had kind of, we had made a priority of, of publishing it, uh, I think early this year, which we did. So, but yeah, it was, um, it was uh, definitely an emotional story, uh, to work on and, uh, you know, one I'm certainly proud of. Yeah, the, uh, the line, uh, and you said it, the, you deserve to grow old. I mean, that's a gut punch when you read that line. Yeah, that was um, there. There were a few times during this story where uh, the I, ju- I just remember sitting back in a chair, you know, if it was an interview in a chair when I was sitting with Perry Tyndall in his office when he was describing that. And it was just quiet for, uh, you know, a few beats. And I was just I couldn't believe that someone would ever have to tell you know anyone that, that you deserve to grow old um, or listening to. And I remember going out after that interview and sitting in my car and I just kind of stared at the windshield for a minute and let that try to sink in and, and understand that, which I still don't know if I still do. That's just such a, it is such a gut punch, as you mentioned. And then the other line, and then the line from Ronnie Inger when he told me, you know, about you can't save everybody. Right. And just that he didn't, he was like, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I'm not sure what to do. And there was a sense of helplessness that really reminded me of um, No Country for Old Men. Uh, and the Tommy Lee Jones character, the sheriff who crime had, you know, I think he says something along the lines of, you know, crime today, it's hard to take its measure. You just, you know, you, you, he was describing how he just couldn't believe how things had escalated, how violent everything had become. And hearing him talk about, 
what had happened in that town was much the same way. So, yeah, there were several moments in the story. And then interviewing uh, Stephanie White, the, the mother of Antonio Hines, who was murdered uh, in the town in the summer of 2016. Um, that was, you know, I talked to her over a period of time or, uh, you know, a few times. And everyone was, was you know, painful to hear her story. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful to her for sharing it. And I hoped to try to keep the memory of her son alive. Um, given, you know, everything that, that she's been through. But yeah, it was, it was a difficult story to work on from an emotional perspective. But I felt very honored that these people were willing to open up and very, um, driven to try to live up to their, their openness and to share the story in a, in a way that would do justice to, to, yeah, th- everything they've been through and everything the town has been through. So I'm, I'm wondering if on such an emotional story like this, how do you kind of, take care of yourself on that how do you process all of this is heavy material that you're getting and how do you kind of keep your your head right and your head straight not even just from a journalist or writing perspective but just you know as a person as a human being how did you kind of deal with all that uh that's a good question i you know i as a journalist i tend to just compartmentalize and you you try to figure out the facts of what happened and and where and how and why and all that and divorce yourself as much as you can from the other stuff, you know, certainly, uh, I'm not a robot and so I'm not immune to it, but you know, my, I think so much of when I'm actually writing the story, I'm thinking, okay, what is the natural transition here? How is the story moving along? How, you know, what is, do I need, you know, to pause for a beat here to let the reader, to let this kind of sink in for the reader. So I'm just so engrossed in the story itself and trying to find the most artful, honest way to tell it that, uh, that I'm probably a little bit divorced from the emotional aspect of it. Now that, that doesn't mean that, uh, I don't, you know, think about it, you know, before I go to bed and, and think about what it's like when Stephanie White goes to bed, um, and you know, her waiting for some kind of justice or retribution or the fact that her son is buried in an unmarked grave and the burden of everything that she goes through or that the sheriff goes through or that the high school coach or others in the town go through. I'm not, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's impossible not to think about all of that, but at the time I'm mostly just thinking about smaller things like, okay, what's my deadline for the story? What's the word count that I need to hit? What's the next section that goes best here? What is the best way to describe this scene? You know, all of those little details. And, uh, and that keeps me usually pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> so when when you're reporting and like the one thing leads to another and leads to another and kind of on and on like that, how do you know when you're done? That's a, another good question. Um, I when I'm reporting, I usually have this kind of pit in my stomach, so to speak. Like there's this this I don't know how to this. I don't want to say it feels like I'm sick, but it's not far off on that. And I just report and report and report until I don't feel that anymore <laughs> until it feels like I have everything that I could uh, that I could possibly need and I think what that pit is honestly is I've thought about it more because it's always there is like that there's a hole somewhere in the story right there's some kind of something that hasn't been filled some question or questions that have been unanswered or I haven't turned over every possible stone that could yield some incredibly compelling telling piece of information. And it's only until I do all that, which, you know, in some cases takes 
dozens and dozens of phone calls and many, many months um, on whatever story it is I'm working on. It's not until I feel comfortable in this kind of crippling fear that I'm missing something important uh, or that I'm, I'm, I don't have enough to tell the story the way it, it deserves to be told. It's not until I have all that that I know I'm done. Uh, I mean, some people say like when you interview people and you just keep hearing even new people and you're not getting any new information, they're just repeating the same things. That's certainly true. But in a weird way, like the, the gut or the pit in my stomach uh, when I'm reporting, when that starts to fade, I think I usually have enough. Um, all right. So we've talked about serious stuff. Let's talk peanut butter and jelly, which is serious, of <laughs> course. Um, and also the wine story that you did recently. Um, I love those stories. They're so much fun. They're so interesting. Look, especially at NBA players. So where did they, where did, where did those ideas come from? Where does it come from? Like, yeah, I'm going to write about their love of peanut butter and jelly. How's that come about? So when I was an intern at the Boston Globe, <clears throat> excuse me, in the summer of 2008, the Celtics were in the finals against the Lakers. And one of the storylines I remember from that summer was that uh, I, maybe ESPN did like a little sports center feature or something about it. I can't remember exactly, but uh, that the that Kevin Garnett had started them on peanut butter and jelly. And I just thought that was kind of interesting and quaint, as did other news outlets at the time who were writing about it. And I tucked that, I just remembered that. And then when I became a full-time beat writer in the NBA, later at the Boston Globe, interestingly enough, I remember going around the NBA and I kept seeing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the pregame um, uh, locker room spreads, right? Okay. For, mm -hmm. And if you go into opposing locker rooms, you'd see peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I thought that was interesting. And then I kept noticing it more and more. And eventually, I remember telling one of my bosses, like, I, I said, that, you know, it's funny, there's so much money in the NBA, there's so much science and analytics and dietitians and high-tech cameras and all this stuff but yet there's peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all over the place i'm not sure why that is but i'd like to look into it and they you know were they were on board with it so that that's really where it started and then you know from there just like anything else it's one phone i i, I another thing that's probably true in a lot of my stories is i'm always trying to get to the origin point of something right you know, where something exactly began if it could and then so i made enough phone calls and a lot of the the mass revolution our production i should say of pb and j in the nba went back to that moment with kevin garnett and the celtics um and from there it was trying to figure out all right well who does it where did it go from there which teams do it how do they do it what is the science behind these sandwiches uh, so to speak and then also just the element of of uh you know it's a comfort food and why why it is that what what it what that exactly means and why players trust peanut butter and jelly when so many things are outside of their control and a lot of it dates back to childhood and it's something that's very familiar it's easy to you know it's hard to screw up so um yeah that's kind of where that one started and then the wine story, I just kept seeing it, you know, players post pictures on social media or casually mention it in interviews and, uh, you know, posting pictures from Napa. You know, Dwayne Wade um, started a, a relationship with Paul Meyer Wine in Napa to do um, his own label. And it just seemed like something that was more than a than a side project for a lot of these guys, that it was, a you know, an intense passion of theirs. And. I kind of went from there. I wanted to talk to people in the wine industry to try to figure out, okay, you know, how, what's your take on these players and, and how interested or obsessive they are with wine. And they were 
really impressed and said that the level of detail and attention to detail that these players were bringing to the table, um, so to speak, was was unlike you know a lot of what they'd ever seen, even entertaining celebrities or well-to-do or whoever the case may be. Uh, but that these players who are obviously you know intense students of the game and and break down basketball to a really intricate incredible level um we're doing the same when it come to came to one asking all kinds of really interesting detailed questions from the soil to the weather to fermentation tanks and on and on and on and so that's kind of where that that one started and then it i just you know as i try to do or as i guess it often happens i just went down the rabbit hole on both that story and uh you know on peanut butter and jelly and then on, on another number of other ones and then came out on the other side when I felt like I had enough to tell the story, you know, the way it, it, at least in a complete way so that people could understand it. I love the scene in that, in the wine story where I think you're talking to, to Dwayne Wade and uh, LeBron like starts inching his way over and, and Wade is like, look, he, he heard you say wine. He's going to inch his way over and LeBron totally copped to it and came over and started to talk about it. That was a great moment that you captured there. Um, I'm wondering what it's like when you go up to players and say, I'm doing a story about your peanut butter jelly or about peanut butter and wine, or peanut butter and wine, uh, about, <laughs> about your wine collection. I mean, are they, are they kind of like, why are you asking me about this? Are they like all in to talk about it? I, it that, you know, it's a good question. Um, I, I guess I, I, they, they've been fine. Like I've never seen you know, They might for a second be like, Oh, that's kind of, you know, whatever that's might, might be a little off or something. I mean, it's different than the usual talk about the game from last night questions, but I think to a lot of players, they find it refreshing that they're, that there's a change of pace and, and whatever they're being interviewed about. And for some of them, you know, it's interesting. They're so incredibly passionate, like, you know, take Carmelo Anthony, a wine, for instance, when I sat down with him, it almost felt like he'd been waiting for someone to interview him about something about this for some time. And so everything just poured out of him. Uh, you know, so much. It was like, it was an amazing interview. I walked away just saying, my gosh, he probably could have, we could have talked for hours and hours and hours. Um, and, you know, in terms of some of the other ones, uh, I think players, you know, like peanut butter and jelly, for instance, I think players had fun with it. Um, in, in recalling, you know, if it was Brandon Ingram talking about how particular he is and how there has to be like jelly coming out both sides of the sandwich or that there isn't, you know, I, I'll say this too. Um, one of the things that was kind of interesting on the peanut butter and jelly one, people were somewhat intense in talking about that because they believed that a lot of people believed that however they had peanut butter and jelly growing up was the only way that peanut butter and jelly should ever be served and that every other way was disgusting. <laughs> uh, so people had like if people believed in grape jelly, they thought strawberry was the most disgusting thing or vice versa. Um, and once I had kind of mentioned them, like I'm doing a story kind of about, you know, peanut butter and jellies or the culture of it, people, it was interesting. Players would be like, oh yeah, you know, that's so true. Um, and they would talk about when I was with this team, they did it a certain way and I didn't really like that or we didn't like that. And we changed it or, you know, or in Portland, they, they, you know, toast the, the bread and they cut it a certain way because that's how Damian Lillard likes it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm. I'm always trying to find an untold story. Um, and a lot of that is just paying attention to something that might be small, but there might be something more there. Um, and you never know. I mean, I, I, one of the things I thought will stick with me from the wine story, 
uh, is this notion that that the winemakers had, and I and I think there's truth to it that they feel as if there's a corollary between players and wine in terms of the appreciation for how there's so much work that goes into making a bottle of wine that no one will ever see, right? Mm -hmm. And but that's players live that. That is, they spend all these hours in the gym, and it's it's uh, basically a lifetime, and then they perform, and they're kind of judged and critiqued intensely, just as wine is, um, and that there was kind of this appreciation for all of for that, this process of kind of you know all these this painstakingly crafted thing that you know goes out into the world, and um, so yeah, there there turned out to be something more there, but. Um, Anyways, that's kind of yeah, that's 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 my approach on those kinds of things. So how do you how do you find untold stories, especially now in this media age, and you're covering the NBA, which of course has so much media coverage. I mean, it, how do you find a story that hasn't been told yet? Uh, that's it's a great question. Um, there's, I I'll first say that I had an editor at the LA Times named Steve Padilla, uh, who is uh, he was the writing coach for the Tribune Company. I think with the recent sale you know, of, of the LA times mm -hmm. or however, I'm not sure how that his position works now anyways, but he always kind of implored, uh, writers to develop a story hunting mindset, to always be on the lookout for stories. And he would kind of work, he would work with you on the, the various ways to do that. Um, if it's, you know, if, if everyone's looking at the macro, maybe you need to look at the micro or vice versa. There's a number of things that he would talk about. I think there's actually a list of these things on pointer.com uh, or pointer.org. Uh, if that's the site's name. And, um, so he was, he was instrumental in that. And then when I was an intern at the globe, I remember Walter Robinson, uh, famous spotlight editor portrayed by Michael Keaton in the movie spotlight. Um, he talked about how there are great ideas all around us. And so often the people might be reaching for the most difficult to reach route, like at the top of the tree. And that's, mm -hmm. he's like, and those are, that's a worthwhile pursuit, but never forget that there's great stories in front of you, um, all the time. And so I'm constantly thinking of that, you know, like what, and, and, in, in, and as I think of that, something that I'm trying to do, uh, and this speaks to something else an editor once told me, is just listen very carefully. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had described that listening was a lost art or a dying art. Maybe it is a lost art. I don't know. But, and, you know, and I've come to find that during the course of an interview, somebody may say something, uh, just like that provides a little, like, it's like they crack open a window. And there's something fascinating beyond, or there might be, you know, it's potentially a road to something more interesting. And so often I'm trying to listen very carefully in interviews, um, for that moment. Uh, they might say something unexpected, interesting. That's a window into another world. And, uh, I might ask, you know, then, you know, take the interview in a different direction and there might be nothing there, but I have this, this kind of fear that uh if i'm not listening closely enough i'm gonna miss that and that i'll miss a great story um because of it so that's a very long-winded answer but uh the way of of you know I've, I've had several great editors who have um i i take their lessons to heart when it comes to you know whether it's listening or low-hanging fruit or just the idea of stories being all around you or the story hunting mindset all of that. I take all of that into consideration and it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very important to me. What's the best thing you've read lately? Oh boy, that is a great question. Um, you know, I'm a huge David Grant fan. I think his, I don't, I think like sentence for sentence that he's the best nonfiction writer in America. So his, 
uh, recent piece in the New Yorker on the um, explorer uh, who who traversed the Atlantic or the Antarctic, excuse me, um, I thought was remarkable. Um, his stories are always just such incredible journeys themselves, and the characters are so incredibly fascinating. And uh, you know, his book Killers of the Flower Moon is is amazing. The other story that I read recently that that I, I'd plug on here was I think it's Kingdom of Dust or Kingdom from Dust. But in uh, California Sunday about the largest farmer in America, uh, in California. And that story was, you know, I won't be surprised if it's nominated for or wins a national magazine award, um, at some point. It is a remarkable feat of, of journalism that's, you know, maybe like the grand story is like 20,000 words, but is just so captivating and hard to put down, which is, you know, again, for a story that length is, is, uh, is really something. Cool. I can recommend, I just finished a book last week called Lost Almost. It's a novel by a writer, Amy Knight, her first novel. And it's really short. It's, I think it's less than 200 pages. It's about a, uh, a physicist and a fictional f- physicist who worked in Los Alamos and his family and kind of like all like various different stories around his family. And it was just, it was one of those books. I haven't had this in a long time where the world and that was created and the writing and the characters, it was so good. I read it slow because I didn't mm. want it to end. I, I usually read pretty quick. And, and this was one where I forced myself to, to, to kind of dole it out almost day by day. Cause I didn't want the, it was such a short book. I didn't want it to end. It's just a great, great book. So I would recommend that one. If you're looking for a good, it's an easy read, but it's a very compelling one. So I would write, if you're looking for a fiction, I can recommend that. That's great. No, I, and I know exactly what you mean when you're talking about writing like that. I feel the, that way about Grand, uh, Colson Whitehead, Michael Paternity, Pam Koloff. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, Catherine Schultz, the New Yorker, any of her stories, I almost don't want them to end. And I find myself reading them more slowly to study, uh, the way that they construct, you know, a sentence or, you know, that they're, the way they choose certain verbs to tell like describe action or the way that they construct certain scenes uh there's certain you know it's <laughs> for for it's really humbling to read work like that i mean it shows i mean i guess in this in like in the basketball sense like i could be like an okay three-point shooter but then you see steph curry and it just totally that's like a whole other world and it feels that way sometimes like when you're reading some of these people that I'm talking about it. It's just, they are on such, such a high level, but yeah, it, it's worth savoring and studying their writing for sure. Baxter, if people want to follow you and see what, what else you, your next stories, where's the best place to do so? Sure. So, uh, just ESPN, um, dot com. You know, my Twitter handle is at, it's really simple. It's my first name at Baxter, <laughs> B-A-X-T-E-R. Um, that's a good place to find it. Uh, and you know, if you, and I guess Google, right. If you're, interested in and in, in my work you could probably find it find it there awesome well this has been a great conversation thanks so much for joining me thanks for having me man i really appreciate it as always thanks for listening to the other 51 you can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguy.com on the other 51 tab You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz.